God's word read comes from Galatians chapter 2. We're going to just focus on uh, verse 20. And let me encourage you to have that scripture in front of you while we go through it and while I preach on it. Um, during the prayer, we prayed that, that my preaching would be in tune with the scripture. It may, my mind works funny. It made me remember something. My dad used to be a Sunday school superintendent, and he led the singing. He was a real good singer. And there was one song in particular, though, the pianist was playing, and, and my dad sang just like a half a note low. He was flat the whole time, and he sang, and he sang it that way the whole way through. And later that day, my mom said to him, you were flat on that song that we sang. And, everyone, and he said, no, I wasn't. And she said, well, didn't you hear the piano and everyone else singing just a half step above you? And he said, well, everyone else was wrong. <laughs> well, just so you make sure that I don't treat God's word that way, keep the Bible verse in front of you as we uh, study it together. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 uh, the context is Paul is arguing why the gospel that he preached is the gospel that the Lord revealed to him. It's the true gospel. And he shows, he just tells a, several autobiographical stories to show that this is the case. And in this particular story, he talks about when the apostle Peter, uh, also known as Cephas, uh, came to Antioch, this church that the apostle Paul and Barnabas were planting, and it had started as Jewish Christians from the synagogue, but then Gentile Christians uh, were added to the church. And so you have this, these Jewish and Gentile Christians working together, um, serving together. I'll stand a little closer to the mic. And if you don't, can't hear me, just signal that you can't hear me because I, I tend to move around and so I'm not paying attention. So. Well, what happened was they, they would have a fellowship meal every Lord's Day, and Jews and Gentiles uh, showed that they belonged, that, that the ground of acceptance with God and with one another is God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And so they would spend time together with one another, fellowshipping Jews and Gentiles. But then a group of people nicknamed the Judaizers came up. They claimed to be from James. Um, and this, this text says they were from James, but, uh, but the book of Acts says James said he didn't really send them. They, they weren't really, they didn't really have his authorization. But they were saying, oh, it's great for you Gentiles uh, to come to know Jesus and to confess the God of Israel. But to really be accepted, you've got to be uh, circumcised and you've got to become Jews. You've got to take on, you've got to submit to the uh, Jewish law as revealed in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You've got to buy the whole package or else you're not really acceptable. For whatever reason, Peter withdrew fellowship from the Gentile Christians while they were there. I kind of cut him some slack and imagine, well, he wanted to try to straighten them out and he didn't want to offend them off the bat, so he did that. But the Apostle Paul saw this as a gospel issue, not just a minor judgment call, but a major mistake because it was saying loud and clear to the Gentiles, you're not really acceptable unless you are circumcised and become Jewish 
Christians. And, and the Apostle Paul actually confronted Peter publicly. And, and this verse that we're going to read is part of that confrontation. And as you read through the New Testament, you realize that Peter, Peter took it well, uh, that Peter and Paul remained in fellowship, that Peter, I, one thing you gotta love about him, he, not only was he quick to blunder, but he was always quick to repent too. And, and even though our text doesn't say so, it seems from the rest of the New Testament that he was quick to repent in this case. So our text comes from that context. Listen to Galatians 2 verse 20 and then keep it in front of you. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So hence the reading of God's word. Again, keep that Bible verse in front of you. Let's pray together. O living God, as we reflect on this scripture, we pray for the grace of the Holy Spirit. Please open your word to our minds and hearts, and please open our minds and hearts to your word, and give us grace that uh, we would heed what you say, uh, that the seed of your word would take deep root in our hearts and would bear much abiding fruit for your glory and the good of your kingdom and for our own good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I grew up in Pennsylvania in a, in a liberal Protestant church. Um, I became a Christian the summer I graduated uh, from high school. I mean, a Christian in the sense uh, that I really embraced Jesus as my savior and committed uh, to follow him and understood what it meant uh, that he saved me. And one of the things that, uh, where I grew up was a largely Roman Catholic uh, neighborhood or a area. And so most of my friends, many of my friends were Roman Catholics and sometimes we would have doctrinal debates. <laughs> Not that I knew any more than they did, and not that I was any more a believer than they were, but sometimes we would debate, debate various things. And one of the things I came to realize was uh, that in Roman Catholicism, the notion is that God infuses grace into you through the sacraments when you go to church, when, when you take the sacraments and so on. He puts grace into you, kind of like pouring water into a cup and, and that grace more and more displaces the sin in your life. And, and then at the end, on Judgment Day, God will judge you, or when you die, God will judge where you are. Have, has that grace completely displaced all the sin? And if it hasn't, you have to go to purgatory. And the reason I came to know this is we were talking about, should we do this or that? And, oh, no, that would be a sin. And, the, and their, their fear was, well, that would be they would lose grace. That would sort of poke a hole in the, in the glass and the water, the grace would leak out some and, and that would make it even harder. And that didn't make sense to me, although it did to them. And, and it was only later after I had become a Christian that I came to understand a little better what, what they were concerned about. And it was what Roman Catholics were concerned about during the time of the Protestant Reformation. 
one of the when when Martin Luther and then John Calvin and others rediscovered what the Bible teaches about the good news uh, that it's because of God's grace alone uh, and what Jesus has done alone his his blood and righteousness alone received through faith alone that God accepts us as his beloved children and he justifies us he means he, he accepts us as righteous in his sight for now and forever. And there's no need of purgatory and there's no fear of hell because whoever comes to Jesus, he will never drive away. Well, the, those who were devout Roman Catholics were kind of scared of that message because they said, well, what will keep people from falling into serious sin unless it's the fear of God's judgment of of God getting mad at them. What will keep them from that? And, and the Protestant response was, this is what the Bible teaches and it's good news. And, and there was a bit more of a response, which I'll talk about in, in, in the sermon. Uh, but but what, they, what they sort of discovered was that in practice, this was kind, this kind of, the Roman Catholic fears sort of were born out so that many people in Protestant towns or Protestant provinces or uh, areas uh, began living morally loose lives. I mean, not worrying so much about whether they were breaking God's law or not. And so this caused many of the Puritan pastors to be really concerned about this, and they began to preach lots of sermons on the Ten Commandments and telling people, no, this is not what God wants. You really need you really need to pay close attention to the law. And there was a pastor named Walter Marshall. This is maybe 50 years after the Westminster Assembly had adopted the Westminster Confession of Faith and the catechisms. And he was following the same line of approach. And he, just, he, he realized, you know, most of the people in my congregation are in despair. They have no assurance of salvation, and in fact, I have no assurance of salvation. He himself, he wondered whether he could be a Christian with all the sins uh, that he had in his life, and so he began seeking advice from, from other pastors. And one of these pastors was Richard Sibbs. You may have heard that name. He's, he was a pure English Puritan, and he still has books in print uh, to this day. And he would go to these other pastors, and he would just, well, He'd sort of spill his guts and confess his sins and why he think why he fears that he's not even a believer himself and how can he dare to be a pastor and his own people are on the verge of suicide because of their despair and oh my and so Richard Sib says well you haven't even mentioned your worst sin of all and and Pastor Marshall was really shocked at that and he said what do you mean. Richard Sibbs, well, the worst sin of all is that you are not trusting Jesus both to forgive your sins and to deliver you from them in practice. In other words, you're not trusting him not only for your justification, but also for your sanctification. And Walter Marshall, I mean, that was like a ton of bricks dropping on his head and sort of a turning point in his life. And he, and he went and he uh, began studying that things from that vantage point, and it, it transformed his entire ministry. It became a gospel-centered ministry, good news in Jesus Christ. 
And he wrote a book called The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. And this verse was his key text. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This was the good news, not just for your forgiveness of sin, but for your newness of life. So two basic points in this sermon, and each of them has two sub-points. Number one, first basic point, God himself in the person of Jesus Christ rescues sinners because of his sheer grace. What makes Bible Christianity unique is that it's the one and only rescue religion. Uh, someone has put it this way. Most religions are do religions. Do this and God will accept you. Or do this and, and you'll reach nirvana. Or do this and you'll reach whatever their version of salvation is. And here are 10 steps, here are three steps, here are five steps, here are however many steps. But it's up to you to do this. And in fact, that I grew up Protestant, but that was sort of the message that I grew up with. You know, it's good to be good. Do these things, and God will accept you. And in fact, our, our fallen nature is wired that way. Uh, we have this notion we've got, to, we've got to live up to a certain level or else God will be on the outs with God. Well, the, the Bible's good news is Christianity, the Christian faith, is a done religion. What we can't do, no matter how hard we try, Jesus has done for us. And he, he gives his righteousness to us, his perfect record to us, as a free gift through faith alone. Jesus rescues sinners by purchasing that rescue for them, by that salvation for them. So look closely at our verse at the, towards the end. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So who is the one who saves? It's the Son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, through whom all things were made. And he is the Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ, it means the anointed one. He's, he's not only God, but he added to himself a human nature. He's the God-man, fully God, fully human, as our prophet, priest, and king. And he lived the perfect life that we owe to God. He died the atoning death to make up for the sin, uh, the death that we owe to God. He's, and he did it because he loves us. The son of God who loved me, who does he love? Me. The Apostle Paul could say that. And if you're resting in Jesus only, you can say that. He loves me. This, the Christian faith is a very personal thing. And so that means it's not just a matter of belonging to the right church or, or adhering to the right doctrine or following the right uh, code of conduct. But it's really a matter of having personal contact with the Lord Jesus Christ, a personal connection with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's based on his love. We receive it as a free gift through faith alone. Alone. Now, how did he show his love? He gave himself for me. 
or the, the horrible curse that we deserved, he took on himself. And we know this so well that sometimes we take it more lightly than we should. But when you read through the Gospels, just, just read when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he, and he was praying, agonizing in such a way that was as if he was, um, his sweat was like, he was sweating blood. Um, he was under so much pressure and, and he kept praying, if it's at all possible, Father, let this cup be taken away from me. I mean, so that his holy uh, soul shrank from uh, the, the hell that we deserve, that he was going to take. But each time he said, but not my will, but yours uh, be done. Notice how personal all this is. Again, it's not just a matter of belonging to the right group or, or saying the right doctrines or living the right way, but it's, it's first and foremost a matter of trusting the Lord Jesus, being connected to the Lord Jesus, following the Lord Jesus in faith. That's our great hope, because even when we mess up doctrinally, even when we mess up practically in our living, it's not our right belief, it's not our right conduct that, that makes us right with God, but it's Jesus who makes us right with God. And Jesus rescues sinners by, this is the second sub-point under that first main point, Jesus rescues sinners uh, by bringing that salvation that he purchased to bear on them, by applying it to them. So that as we look, keep looking at this verse, on the one hand, believers are in Christ. Notice how our verse says, I have been crucified with Christ. When did that take place? The Apostle Paul is saying that, but every believer can say that. I have been crucified with Christ. When did that take place? Well, it doesn't say I will be. It doesn't say I am being. It says I have been. It takes place in the past. It was done. And and the way it takes place by virtue of our being united to Christ is that God has counted what Jesus did and what Jesus paid as ours. I have been crucified with Christ. How? Well, it's with Christ. And as you keep reading this verse, it's also in Christ. It's by virtue of our union with Christ. So that when you put your trust in Jesus, uh, you are united to Christ. And the union with, and the Holy Spirit unites you and faith, you're united through faith, uh, but by the Holy Spirit. And this union with Christ has two aspects. On the one hand, there's a legal aspect, which means that God counts what you have done, your bad record, as Jesus's, and he punishes Jesus for it on the cross, and God counts, takes Jesus' good record, and he, count, and he counts that as yours, and he rewards you for that with eternal life and every blessing in Christ. There's that legal aspect. Well, that's the part that Protestants especially emphasized, maybe overemphasized because it had been neglected for so long, and that's where they said, well, we're free, we're going to heaven. It doesn't matter how we live. Well, there's an element of truth to that. It doesn't matter how we live because it's not our doing 
that saves us. It's Christ doing that saves us. There's an element of truth, but there's a, there's a missing component that they were neglecting because the union with Christ has not only a legal aspect, but also a vital aspect. When, when you come to Jesus, the, the Holy Spirit joins you to him so that you are, you draw your life from him. You receive new life from him. Jesus put it this way, I am the vine and you are the branches. And just think of a tomato plant. So a tomato plant, if you clip off the, uh, one of the branches, it's not gonna get any tomatoes from that branch. But you do clip off some of the branches called suckers and Jesus in John 15 talks about that. Those that aren't bearing fruit, he, he, God the Father clips off. Uh, but those that are bearing fruit, he cuts back so that they'll bear even more fruit. He's talking about a grape, a grapevine instead, but he said that's what believers are like. So that not only do we receive what Jesus has done as ours legally in the sight of God, but we receive the life, the power, the vitality uh, of Jesus as well. So in one sense, going back to my childhood discussions with Roman Catholic friends, uh, on the one hand, Christ's righteousness is imputed to believers, it's counted as ours. But on the other hand, and our catechisms say this too, Christ's righteousness is infused in us so that we become new creatures in Christ. Uh, not only does Christ justify us, but he sanctifies us, he Christianizes us, he transforms us. So on the one hand, believers are in Christ, and that's our hope, to be united to Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, Christ is in believers. So look closely at verse 20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ who lives in me. And that's what undergirds all Christian living. The Christian faith is not just do this and don't do that, but the Christian faith is be connected to Jesus Christ and by his power, do this and don't do that. Because you're saved and because you're forgiven, don't do this and don't do that. Not in order to be saved or in order to be forgiven. So Christ is in believers. How can Christ live in you? Well, that was something that troubled his disciples in the upper room. Uh, you can read in John 13 through 17, the upper room discourse, and, and Jesus was preparing them for his death and resurrection and ascension. He said, I'm going to be going away. And and you won't be able to come with me. And the disciples kept asking, why can't we come with you? We don't want to be separated from you. And how do we know how to be with you? He's saying, you will be with me someday. And well, how do we know how to get there? And, well, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way. Follow me. But he says, don't worry. I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you in a way that the world can't see, but you will see you will experience, and I will come by sending another counselor, that is the Holy Spirit. And after he ascended to heaven, Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit, and it's by means of the Holy Spirit that he and the Father come and dwell in us. The Holy Spirit mediates uh, the presence of Christ in us. 
So it's not just a matter of us doing something, but it's a supernatural transformation. God himself working in us, dwelling in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, that's the first main point. God himself in the person of Jesus rescues sinners because of his sheer grace. And the second main point is Christ's rescue of us is the double cure for all our sins. I meant to point it out earlier, but we sang the hymn Rock of Ages. And one of the things we prayed as we sang that hymn was be of sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. In other words, bring me both forgiveness and liberation from the power of sin in my life. That's what I mean when I say Jesus' rescue of us is the double cure for all our sins. That's what Pastor Walter Marshall and, and some of the early Protestants and me and, and maybe you and a lot of Christians sometimes forget. We, we tend to mention one side or we tend to mention the other side and maybe partly in reaction to our background. If you grew up in a legalistic background, you, jump, you go to the other extreme for a little while, and if you're in a loose background, you go to the other extreme, you know, more legalistic. Anyway, we tend to do that as, as fallen sinners, but the Lord keeps reminding us, no, no, keep in contact with Jesus, because he is the double cure for our sins. He is the one who brings us both full, full forgiveness and new life. Christ lives in me, and yet there's a there's a complication. At the same time, keep looking at verse 20, Galatians 2.20, I now live in the flesh. And this, this is what gives rise to the great tension in the Christian life, the great tug of war in the Christian life. On the one hand, Christ lives in me, Galatians 2.20. On the other hand, now in the words of Romans 7.20, sin lives in me, Christ lives in me, and sin lives in me. And now as a Christian, we have this great uh, struggle. And it's no wonder there's such a struggle. And yet sometimes that's forgotten. So Pastor Marshall had forgotten that. He thought, I've got this terrible struggle. How can I possibly be a Christian? Why, how can I inflict my ministry? On, I don't deserve to be a pastor. I don't deserve to be a church member, which is true. He didn't deserve that. I don't deserve that. You don't deserve that. But it's not our deserving uh, that saves us. It's Christ's deserving uh, that saves us. But for practical purposes, it's, it's true that when you become a Christian and begin a real vital walk with the Lord, that's when your troubles really begin. In some ways, you become a walking civil war. So there is remaining sin within you, and there is Christ within you, and Christ, by the Holy Spirit, works to put to death sin in the flesh. And, and sin in the flesh works to expel Christ. And you've got this uh, back and forth going on. And that's the normal Christian life. That's what we need to understand. While we live in the flesh, we're going to have this struggle. And yet, by God's grace, we can make progress. And there can be substantial healing, but it's through Christ and it's through abiding in Christ, through remaining in him. Or as I like to say, um, my pastor, my first pastor after I was saved um, was Pastor Lou Grotenhouse, uh, 
OPC pastor in New Jersey, and, and he used to say, diligently use the means of grace. It sounded kind of like that. We used to imitate him. Diligently use the means of grace. But the way I like to uh, sort of paraphrase that is, keep breathing in God's word and keep breathing out your prayers and praises. Keep breathing in God's word. Keep breathing out your prayers and praises. Which is why we need to live by faith in the Son of God. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I live by faith, which means, first of all, that this is ongoing. It's not just, oh yes, I've walked the sawdust trail, I can check that off, and now I can just coast through the rest of life and not really think much of Christ except as a memory of when I, when I first put my trust in him. But no, I live day after day, step by step, moment by moment. I live by faith in the Son of God. It's, it's very, secondly, very personal. I live by faith in the Son of God, not just by what I know about the Son of God or about sound doctrine, but by personal trust in the Son of God, Jesus the Savior. And it's dependent. I live by faith in the Son of God. I rely on him. He's my only hope. I need him. So Galatians 2.20 shows us that in Christ, God changes not just your status, but also he changes you. And that was what uh, Richard Sibbs explained to Walter Marshall, and that's what Walter Marshall, that's what transformed his ministry so that his congregation became a growing, joyful uh, congregation with people being converted. God changes your status so that you are righteous in Christ, but he also changes you so that you become more and more like Christ. He not only counts you as righteous, but he also makes you righteous, which means he gives you new desires because you're a new creature in Christ. So picture a teenage boy and, and his room is a mess and his dad says, why don't you clean up your room? And the kid says, meh. You've got, his mom says, you've got dirty clothes all over the floor. Put them in the hamper and I'll wash them for you. And the kid says, meh. <laughs> and, and his dad says, why don't you take a shower? You're kind of ripe. <laughs> and the kid says, meh. <laughs> his mom says, well, at least put on some of this aftershave and, and deodorant, kind of cover it up. But, and the kid says, meh. But then one day in school, uh, looks across the room and his eyes happen to meet that of this girl and her eyes meet his and she smiles at him and and something changes inside and he comes home and, and he immediately picks up all the dirty clothes and puts them in the hamper and kind of cleans up his room and he jumps in the shower and takes a shower and starts wearing clean clothes and combing his hair and what has changed? Well, something about his desires has changed. And that's just a, a human illustration, but it's, it helps us to understand that when we come to Christ, he begins to change us inside so that our desires change. So that once we were content with sins in our lives, but now we might not be free of those sins, but we're no longer content with them. We don't want them. We don't want them anymore. But not only does the Lord give us new desires, he gives us new ability, new power. So can you breathe water? 
Can any of us breathe water? No, we can't, but we used to be able to. When we were gestating in our mother's womb, we breathed water. Well, amniotic fluid, but we breathed, or we breathed it. And once we were born and breathed our first breath, we can't breathe that anymore. We, we were transformed into, into a different phase of life, new creatures. And so that it's no longer natural. It's possible to breathe water. I know because I have, I love to swim. And, and, and every so often when I've been swimming in the lake uh, and I, I take a breath, a wave smacks me right in the face just as I'm trying to breathe in. And, but I can't just continue swimming if, when that happens because I have to stop and choke and cough and get the water out before I can do anything again. It's no longer natural to me. It's no longer natural for us to sin. It's still possible for us to sin, uh, but it doesn't give us the same kind of satisfaction anymore. It's, it's unnatural. We want new things, we want better things, and the Lord gives us the ability uh, to pursue those new things, those better things. He gives us new power, but by faith in him. So Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me, and you'll bear much fruit. In other words, keep breathing in God's word, breathing out your prayers, breathing in God's word, breathing out your prayers, and the Lord will strengthen you, and the Lord will transform you. In a nutshell, God's rescue of us in Christ is both free, it doesn't cost us anything, it costs Jesus everything, but he paid it all. We receive it with the empty hands of faith when we just reach out our hands to receive that free gift. But it's also full. That is, he doesn't just save us from going to hell, but he saves us from our sins. He saves us to become like him. So in Jesus Christ, you can keep having fresh forgiveness. You can keep making fresh starts. You can keep having fresh strength which leaves us with a, an important question. Are you resting in Jesus alone for your salvation? Do you understand what that means? And can you say yes to that? And don't, please don't leave without being able to say yes uh, to that. Because when you can say yes to that question, when you can say, yes, I am trusting in Jesus alone for my salvation, then you can know that Jesus is for you. He loved you and he gave himself for you. And at the same time, you can know that Jesus is in you. Christ for you, Christ in you. And in that way, Jesus is of sin, the double cure, cleansing both from its guilt and its power. Do you believe that? Let's believe it together. As our prayer of response, uh, let's sing hymn 164, 04.